Welcome back to Providence's Foreign Policy Provcast. I am Mark Melton, the Deputy Editor of Providence, and I am joined here today with Aaron Rhodes, who is the President of the Forum for Religious Freedom Europe. Welcome, Aaron Rhodes. I'm so glad you're able to come into the office today. Thank you, Mark. So uh, Aaron wrote an article, actually he's written several articles for us, but in the latest issue of the uh, Providence's print edition, he wrote an article about universal human rights, and uh, um, the issue has several articles that kind of go off of the 70th anniversary of the UDHR, the Universal Declaration for Human Rights. So Aaron, my first question is, how did you get interested in human rights? Well, by by chance, really, I have studied a range of things uh, as a young man, uh, including some some studies in in political philosophy, and uh, I have a kind of a incohate liberalism um, as my uh, intellectual political orientation. And I was working as a university administrator in the nineteen eighties. It's kind of a long story. I hope it doesn't get too long, <laughs> but. Uh, Eventually, this took me to um, Vienna, Austria, and I was uh, uh, working for the Institute for the Wissenschaften vom Menschen, their Institute for Human Sciences, which is a think tank uh, trying to bridge uh, Eastern and Western Europe. And we had a project on reforming uh, universities and research institutes in post-communist countries, and I was traveling in Poland and uh, Czechoslovakia and uh, other countries, Hungary, Balkan countries, and <clears throat> and I sort of became very, very um, mobilized on the question on questions of of, of uh, freedom and uh, transformation to democracy. These kinds of questions, and so eventually I uh, became the executive director of the International Helsinki Federation for Human Rights, which was based in Vienna, uh, without really having a background in human rights as such, um, and my understanding of human rights really comes from working in human rights. So I did a lot of work in human rights without a very differentiated intellectual background in human rights. And so, which I think is good in a way. I started with a sort of Aristotelian progression went on with me where I understood it existentially before I grasped it intellectually. And um, in the past five or seven years or so, I have devoted myself mainly to to, to reading and, and writing, um, although I still do have some some engagements in, in concrete problems. And I've tried to understand the foundations of, of the idea of human rights and to understand what's happened to human rights uh, and how really how far the idea of human rights has strayed from these foundations and how many of the problems in, in, in international human rights institutions reflect this betrayal of the foundations of human rights. And last year you published a book called The Debasement of Human Rights. So how has or how have human rights been debased? Well, you know, very to put it in, you know, in a nutshell, human rights have been conflated with a lot of political questions. Uh, and political questions I define as questions dealing with money how to divide the pie, how to uh, uh, deal with the problems of communities, um, uh, the social problems. Now, so many social problems are considered human rights problems, but human rights problems, to me, are problems of protecting human freedom. Uh, and uh, human rights, <clears throat> excuse me, should be r quite narrowly defined 
as um, the challenge of protecting freedoms that are inherent to us as human beings and which uh, are protected uh, by rules uh, which take the form of, of standards and uh, constitutional law and uh, international law. But in the human rights uh, world today, we have you know so many things that are considered human rights, and more and more. And there's a massive proliferation of human rights law, uh, but there's a proliferation of uh, interpretations of human rights. And so there's really no solid rational basis for stating what is, is or is not a human right. And the source of this um, is in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is a kind of sacred cow. So like the Ten Commandments, you know, if you, if, you, if you criticize the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it's like a kind of heresy. But that's what I've done. I guess I'm a heretic. I've done in my book, I've criticized the Universal Declaration of Human Rights for uh, including uh, economic and social rights, uh, which I consider political questions. And I'm not against welfare states, by the way. Uh, I'm not against uh, states providing benefits for their citizens, and especially in the modern world where there's been a, a, a diminution of families, uh, communities. Uh, the individual is uh, uh, very vulnerable in, in, our, in modern society because there's, there's, there aren't the, the uh, support networks that, that existed in the past. And there, there's, a needed, there's a need for protection of, of, of people's welfare within limits. Uh, but I don't think we should... T these are political questions. Uh, these are the, that have to be decided democratically. And different societies have different approaches to these questions. But when you speak of human rights, you speak of unconditional principles, which, uh, you know, uh, where you can't really accept the, you know, some sort of cultural relativism or, or differences in, in, in politics. Human rights are universal and have to be protected by all states. Uh, whereas welfare rights are political questions which should be decided uh, uh, democratically. So the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the UDHR, is something that the last issue of Providence covered a good bit. Would you like to give a quick explanation of what it is, how did it come about, and what were some of the results of it? The, the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is a set of principles uh, that was uh, promulgated uh, in 1948, which um, is the foundation of the international human rights system. It's not international law, it's principles which were agreed to. And um, the process by which this uh, came about was that um, various expert bodies uh, took a kind of survey from leading intellectuals and political figures and religious figures about you know what are human rights. And they collected all these ideas and they sort of distilled them down and came to a consensus about what are, what, are, what, are the, what are human rights. We're going to take a quick break right here with the Foreign Policy Profcast, and we'll be back in just a moment with Aaron Rhodes. Mm -hmm. 
Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Profcast. I am Mark Melton, the deputy editor here at The Journal, and I am here with Aaron Rhodes, who is in town in D.C. for the day, or for a couple of days, I believe. And we are talking about human rights, the UDHR, and the debasement of them and how we can reform them. So, uh, Aaron, what is the situation of human rights in some different countries, specifically like China, uh, Muslim-majority countries, and also Russia, and maybe some other places? Well, I'm, I mean, I'm very pessimistic at the moment because uh, uh, the, you know, if you look at the, the, the way an organization like Freedom House, which very systematically uh, analyzes uh, freedom in the world, uh, you find that the you know freedom is declining for something like the twelfth consecutive year on on a number of very fundamental indices, and authoritarian countries are becoming much stronger, and we have to worry about the 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 the, the, the power of uh, China, especially to to influence uh, international organizations, uh, international human rights institutions, uh, the policies of other countries. And we have to worry about uh, the way China is uh, attacking the very idea of the universality of human rights. They call what they have uh, human rights with Chinese characteristics. It's like, uh, <laughs> I mean, my friend uh, Yan Li Yang and I call that uh, human rights with fascist characteristics. <laughs> you know, basically, uh, uh, this is not human rights at all. This is um, using human rights to defend the, the denial of human rights. And uh, there are over three billion Muslims in the world. They don't have the right to change their religion. Apostasy laws, uh, blasphemy laws. Uh, these people are really uh, in a kind of bondage. And uh, the international community hasn't taken up this question of apostasy, apostasy laws in any serious way. And um, there's no freedom of religion in most of these countries. Uh, uh, there's uh, serious problems with the minorities, uh, and um, um, and there's the inculcation of a kind of ideology, uh, which uh, um, Islamist ideology. I, I think it's even questionable if you can even call it a religion. Um, a country like Russia is a, you know grow, is a, a kind of run by a, a plutocratic gang. Uh, and they have uh, taken steps to uh, infringe on uh, the, the, they've made it illegal to be uh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, basically. There's 170,000 Jehovah's Witnesses in Russia uh, whose uh, who's who's normal, uh, you know, church going and uh, Bible reading, etc., has, has been declared illegal. And uh, they're starting to put them in jail. Uh, I, I should have mentioned in China, by the way, that these internment camps where there, you know, over a million Uyghur Muslims are are, are, are locked up in jail. And in, in you know, in the in the UN uh, review of China's human rights record, which took place uh, a few weeks ago, the Chinese authorities said that these were like uh, residential colleges. Uh, and very few countries uh, raise objection to this. And, uh, and uh, you know, when I was listening to this, I, I, I had the feeling that I was, you know, listening to what if, what if Nazi Germany had been reviewed by the Universal Periodic Review? They would have called Theresienstadt a, a, you know, an internment, you know, like a residential um, relocation campus, which is exactly what they did, you know. I mean... So I think we have um, we have a big we have big problems with the decline of human rights in the world. We have big problems with the rise of authoritarian countries. And I'd also like to mention 
that <clears throat> that many many people in Western societies, especially young people, don't appreciate their human rights. They don't understand that they have human rights, and they don't seem to have any fire in their belly when it comes to the idea of defending their human rights and their freedoms. And so this is a, this leaves uh, these our societies in a, in a vulnerable situation where we're uh, insouciant, we're blasé about protecting the very things that have made our society so good. You mentioned earlier that China is influencing the policies of other countries. Like, how are they doing that, and which countries are you thinking of? With its uh, massive economic uh, influence, China has brought many small countries uh, under its control by uh, giving them... um, Foreign aid and loans, giving them loans that they can't, they they can't or don't pay back, and then in return for you know they, they make a deal with them to you know take over a port or uh, support them at the international level. And I don't want to name names, but um, uh, I saw this very clearly at the at the Universal Periodic Review of China when many of these small countries got up and praised China, apparently reading from a script using the same language making the same points and obediently praising China. Um, and at the end of this um, exercise, uh, there was applause in the Human Rights Council. And I have never uh, heard that before in, in looking and, you know, visiting this uh, Geneva, you know, over a period of 20 years. I uh, heard applause for a country that... Um, denies human rights on the scale that China does. And, um, and, then they, and then they went on to praise the Universal Periodic Review as a, as, a, as a way of dealing with human rights, which, you know, is non-selective and is fair and is, doesn't center on criticizing and, and non-shaming other countries and so on. And so I, really, I mean, I think that if, if, you, if you wanted an example of the degradation of international human rights, I think that, that, that you, ha- you have a good one there. So what are different countries doing about China's situation? Specifically, I'm thinking of the, I guess they're called re-education camps with the Uyghur Muslims. And is it just talk? Is it, are they actually doing anything? Like what's going on in that situation? There's been criticism of China by uh, the United States and by European countries and some other other countries too. Uh, But, um, you know, what, what can be done. Uh, they, 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 they have. Uh, uh, they can shame China, um, uh, but I don't think that this question has entered seriously into economic uh, relations, and so uh, there doesn't seem to be any light at the end of the tunnel on this question, as far as I can see. And and I and I'm I don't really have a you know I'm I'm a modest person, and I'm not going to claim that I I could have a solution to some some awful problem like this. But I think, you know, if, if you don't care about it, you're never going to find a solution. And so it starts with, that, it starts with caring about it. And we'll never find a, a way to, to, to address such problems unless we try. Do you think that international organizations can promote human rights well? Or are there different approaches? Well, international organizations, inclusive international organizations, there's lots of different kinds of international organizations. Some are inclusive and some, of, some, of, some are not. What, we've, what we have today is uh, evidence that the idea of an inclusive international organization in the form of the United Nations does not do a good job protecting human rights because uh, 
I mean, uh, it's only a small minority, uh, well, a, a min let's say a minority of countries in the world today really uh, do a good job of protecting their human rights through their own laws, through their constitutions and through their laws. And, uh, and uh, the others don't. The others, and, 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 and so the others are, you know, the, the UN operates in, in a democratic way, a rule-based way that, you know, this, this is the liberal rule-based uh, international order we have at work whereby authoritarian states uh, govern in the UN. The members of the OIC, uh, China, Russia, all of the, uh, all of the, all of the many, many small um, uh, authoritarian states. And, and so they can't, there's, there's very little hope of really making meaningful uh, resolutions against uh, violators of human rights and um, creating powerful coalitions against the violators of human rights where where there would be you know pressure to change and which also would inspire change um, on the domestic level because you know I and now I'm, I'm gonna say you know this maybe this would this this would ring some some bells with people that I'm, I'm a regime I'm a regime change man I think that you know uh, the, the key to uh, to enjoying human rights lies with political change and really successful changes towards human rights, they don't come from the top down. They don't come from the UN Human Rights Committee or the Human Rights Council or the General Assembly or any of these bodies. They come from underneath in societies where people demand their freedom. They, 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 want, their, they want the government to get off their back and they want them, the government to stop torturing them and stop uh, you know, manipulating them. And this is where, you know, in, in, and you know, I think you look around the world today and you see a dearth of such movements. And, um, and I think we, would be, we, 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 should, we should find ways to support citizens who, who want to change their societies uh, toward uh, societies that respect individual freedom. And how would you do that? Exactly, with educating the population in general. Well, or? We we can do it the way our founding fathers did it. I mean, they they didn't uh, want uh, the United States to get into foreign entanglements, but they projected the idea of human rights, the idea of political freedom, and they 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 they, they established a society which was a beacon of hope for for uh, for these movements, and and we should we should use uh, the power of rhetoric and we should we should find ways to renew the idea of human rights as we speak of it and we should support uh, in, in, in symbolically uh, uh, freedom movements um, and maybe maybe we should you know in ways which are, are you know are, are legal and uh, uh, and won't endanger um, ourselves we should support um, the, the, these, these movements um, in other ways. Do you see any bright spots in the human rights sector? No, but you know that's not my interest. <laughs> I'm interested in the black spots, <laughs> so I don't. You know, I I'm a, I, I I live off problems, not solutions. <laughs> Are there any other steps to reforming human rights? It's through education. You know, uh, um, in, in, in the classical world, there was a tremendous emphasis on education and on, on the idea of virtue. And, um, and to, make, to, to create a good society, we have to have uh, citizens who understand what they're talking about and uh, can think and uh, 
can can use their reason and 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 um, and I and I think in the in the in the modern world there's been you know a, a, you know a failure of, of education, but there's been a men, an in, more of an emphasis on institutions and institutionalization and uh, this was a distinction by the way made in an essay by Leo Strauss I can't claim um, uh, to, <laughs> to 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 credit for this. But I think when I when I read this, I think yes, that's happening, and you know we have to uh, get we have to, and our founding fathers knew very well that um, the success of the republic de de depended on uh, on edu educated citizens. And you know I think when you when you talk to people about human rights today, and you find that they don't really understand this very this idea, which is so fundamental to our political culture, you realize that um, there's been a failure of education, and this failure is is fairly undermining. Um, our political system. And um, so I think, you know, we have to renew the idea of human rights and understanding. We have to, we have to teach, you know, people think about human rights simply in a legal, uh, in a legal way as a kind of um, a methodological positivism. And we need to think of human rights in, a, in, a, in terms of political philosophy. So human rights didn't start with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It, it, it started with, with the philosophy of human rights, and we have to understand that philosophy. Otherwise, our laws aren't going to, aren't going to cohere in a, in a, in a way. And um, I do think that uh, liberal democracies, the United States and a few others, Australia and some European countries and uh, Japan maybe, um, have to... Uh, come to grips with the fact that uh, the the United Nations is not uh, performing properly when it comes to human rights. Maybe in some other questions it does. You know, I I, I think when you talk about the international community, you're not just talking about human rights. You're talking about trade, environmental protection, uh, other other questions where international cooperation is is essential. And I think you know we need international structures dealing with those questions. But when it comes to human rights, this this inclusiveness doesn't is doesn't work. And so societies that respect uh, freedom have to find other ways to to encourage uh, the, the 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 honoring of human rights in other societies. And 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 they have to make alliances one, with one another on a kind of ad hoc basis to uh, encourage. Uh, uh, other societies and to help people struggling for freedom. So I, I favor a kind of principled unilateralism in human rights. Do you see any uh, role for religious faith influencing human rights, either informing it or directing it or any other way? Well, sure. And I, I don't think there's any question that a liberal society depends on various um, moral structures that constrain individual behavior. Human rights protects freedoms, but um, that doesn't mean that people behave in moral ways. So, the, so to, to get people going in the right direction morally, um, they need uh, fixed points of reference which generally uh, implies uh, uh, religion, religious uh, commitments. And I think it would be, I think you have to be careful with this question because religious questions are, are divisive. And the beauty of the idea of natural rights is it does work 
for a secular society, or it works for people whether they're secular or religious. And like like our founder founding fathers, where they were very often, many of them were quite secular in their orientation, but um, but there was a, a kind of common ground uh, in the idea of natural rights. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for coming into the office today. I really appreciate you sharing your views and for writing for Providence. And I hope to have you back and writing again sometime soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can find us online at ProvidenceMag.com, follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine, and download this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.